0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer,
1: and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. This is the Postmortem Podcast, and I'm Mick Garris. So, when did horror go mainstream? When I was a kid, I was the only one I knew who was into horror movies, books, comics, and television. Yeah, The Twilight Zone was popular in primetime on CBS, and ABC had The Outer Limits. They also had the horror comedy The Addams Family, and NBC had its counterpart The Munsters. But I mean the real thing. Horror movies almost never played at my neighborhood theater. Once in a great while, I'd get one of the Corman Poe movies or Psycho at the drive-in, but it was hard to find true genre films and books in my wonder years. From the time I was traumatized in childhood by The Son of Kong and throughout my adolescence and young adulthood, horror was a rare commodity. I would pour over the TV guide and circle anything that looked horrific usually in the middle of the night, and most often marked melodramas, seemingly a code word for horror in that particular magazine. Saturday afternoons, there was Chiller Theater on Channel 11, Channel 5 ran all of the Universal classics, and once in a while, Channel 9 would play something darkish on their million-dollar movie all week long. But now, the most popular shows on television are about zombies and warrior tribes and dragons. HBO blazed trails with Tales from the Crypt way back when, and even my own Masters of Horror series allowed genre filmmakers unfiltered access to the airwaves. Stephen King is breaking box office records, and Godzilla is getting yet another big-budget reboot. It is the best of times for a horror fan. We weren't popular kids in my formative years, but chances are this year's prom king and queen are well-versed in James Wan and The Walking Dead. It is a feast, unleashing a plethora of sequels and reboots and reimaginings. But the good news is... This We are everywhere you look, lurking in the cinemas and your TVs and your tablets, and we're not going anywhere. Horror may have its rise and fall in popularity, but it always comes back for more. And I'm glad to live in a time where almost any burst of dark imagination is accessible at my fingertips 24 hours a day. Speaking of reboots, writer-director Mike Doherty is working on a new version of Godzilla, King of the Monsters. But I first discovered his work with Trick or Treat, a terrific Halloween anthology film that is perfect for the season. And recently, I had a chance to chat with Dario Argento, live at Beyond Fest at the American Cinematheque, and we're going to play excerpts from that conversation here on our little celebration of All Hallows' Eve. You first started as a, doing sketching and, and painting, right? You're an artist before you started working in film.
0: Yeah, I started off as a as an illustrator and animator. Uh, back in my day, I can't believe I'm saying this, but back in my day, we didn't <laughs> I have, remember. I, I'm, I'm reaching that level, I yeah. think. But uh, the best uh, film camera I had available was like the the family Betacam camcorder. Yeah, you know, which which then advanced to become VHS and, and <laughs> big <it> was, advance. <laughs> yeah, they weren't the best resources. Like we definitely didn't have HD cameras in our pockets, so I knew I could draw, and uh, animation became the next logical step because I figured that way I could learn how to make a film frame by frame, at the very
1: least. And uh, it just sort of grew from there. Was there a particular kind of film or, or animation or art that inspired you into this particular direction? Or have you chosen horror or did horror choose you? Uh, I think it's a, it was a mutual decision.
0: <laughs> uh, horror definitely found me and I definitely encouraged it. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s and it was a golden age uh, for horror because it was the beginning of cable television. Mm -hmm. And so much like, you know, streaming and the Internet is all the rage now, and the way that that sort of creates this vast library of old movies and um, TV shows to, to find, so did cable. Because every studio network was digging up old reruns, black and white monster movies, Godzilla movies, and just throwing them on cable for people to devour. And so I was the first generation, I think, to sort of, have access to such a vast menu of of titles to pick from that along with comic books um you know cartoons it was really a a perfect storm of media to inspire stephen king books clive barker um so it was it was it was a really good time
1: so what was do you remember that first thing that captured your imagination that made you go oh I want to be a painter or I want to paint this sort of things or draw or make movies or write because you do all of these things?
0: Uh I th- again I think it was a mix of things. It was uh I, my grandmother had some old uh books with read really the beautiful illustrations of fairy tales and they were the original fairy tales, the darker versions. They yeah, weren't yeah. the, you know, the Disney
1: uh, the Disney-fied versions. The
0: Disney-fied, sanitized version. These were the versions where the the Wicked Stepsisters did cut off their toes to fit into the glass slipper.
2: <laughs> you know, this
0: is the version where uh, the big bad wolf did eat the grandmother at the end. So those were a huge influence on me growing up. Um, but then that same Saturday, I'd be watching a Godzilla movie followed by, you know, Kung Fu and Universal Monster movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, a com- it was a combination of you know, offline analog stuff combined with cable television and VHS. That was also the beginning of the home video uh, revolution. So the idea of getting to a a copy of Alien from the library and being able to watch it over and over and over again, um, that happened a lot. So where did you grow up? Uh, Columbus, Ohio.
1: And were your parents artistic as well?
0: Uh, No, not so much. I mean, there was definitely some creative streak uh, in my father's side of the family. He used to draw when he was younger. Uh, and I think my, my, some of my aunts would sculpt and stuff, but nothing that really stood out. Uh, but they did encourage it. They saw that I... Could do something with a crayon and right. encourage it. Much to the chagrin of my Catholic school nun, <laughs> uh, who did not appreciate the illustrations that I added to the Bible. Um, but uh, the bloody parts. Yeah. No, I would. I, I, to this day, I, I, it was funny because I kept one of those grade school Bibles, and I found uh, an illustration of the fall of Jericho. In it. Wow. And I added Godzilla. <laughs> I had a tendency to add UFOs, Godzilla, monsters, aliens, anything to make the Bible a little bit
1: more interesting. Well, let's not go in order then. Let's, <laughs> let's get right to Godzilla. Now, obviously, <laughs> sure. Godzilla has played a part in your life since the days of Catholic school and yes. your, your Bibles. What was the attraction to him?
0: Uh, I mean, I think Godzilla works on multiple levels. You know, he there's the obvious surface level of it's a giant monster destroying things. So that already is exciting enough uh, and visceral enough, and especially if you throw two or more giant monsters in the same city beating the crap out of each other, it makes <laughs> it more enticing. And I think it works on that very sort of obvious level. Um, but I like to say that I think Young would have a field day with with the kaiju genre because underneath all of that, underneath all the visceral thrills, uh, you have the allegory mm-hmm. of Godzilla and mm-hmm. the giant monsters. And when I was a kid, I was so obsessed with the character uh, because they had the Saturday morning Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Oh, right, right. Which definitely helped foster that love.
1: Was that where you f- were first exposed to Godzilla?
0: No, it was the old monster movies first. Right, the the,
1: old... like the original. Yeah, the Honda, original. The nineteen fifty-four. Yeah.
0: No, I went back. It's funny because cable, you know, they just showed whatever title they had available. Right. They didn't Throw care. Throw it against the wall. Yeah, you know, so I was introduced to the to the to the seventies films uh-huh. first, which were very vivid and colorful, and that was when Toho was purposely uh engineering the movies to cater to kids. Right. And so I started there and went back mm-hmm. to the black and white movie um, and worked my way back to King Kong and the Ray Harryhausen films and um the, it just became sort of this stew of the cartoon and the old movies and
1: Where Godzilla is always battling some right color, yeah.
0: Yeah. And but what I loved is that as I researched the character more, I would go to the local library, and there may be two books on the character. Mm -hmm. And the first book was this old kids' book about the making of the film, really black and white photos, and very of the original of the original. Well, just it was sort of an analysis of the character and, and the film series. And, but it didn't shy away, even though it's a kid's book, clearly written for, you know, five to six year olds. It explained how the character and the film series was created by the Japanese as an allegory for what they went through having, after having two atomic bombs dropped on them, you know, that, that there was a very sort of serious, morose message being communicated through this very seemingly tongue in cheek,
1: giant monster story. Although in the first movie, it's not at all tongue-in-cheek. It's no, exactly. Serious. Yeah, but, And most people have only seen the American version with the Raymond Burr sequences it, cut into it. Yeah. But Gojira, the original Japanese movie, is a really straightforward uh, metaphor for World War II, yeah. which had happened, you know, only nine years before exactly. it had so. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's almost mournful
0: in its tone.
1: Very, you know? it's, yeah.
0: it's not It's not the knee-slapper No, it's got a melancholy about it. Exactly, which I loved. And I think that really made it matter to me as a kid. I understood its importance. It was the first time I learned that a film could have something to say, that a film doesn't always just have to be about entertainment value or blood and guts, that if you craft a film well, it works on multiple levels. Um, And it was almost, I think what I really appreciated about it is that it was subversive. Mm. You know that it was sort of sneaking some nutritional value or some vitamins into your dessert, um, <laughs> because who doesn't love play. Godzilla? But then it's like yeah. when you know that, you then go back and look at the whole series, and even some of the goofier Godzilla films still had very clear environmental messages right. to it. Um, but it, it allowed me to look at my favorite films, whether they be Star Wars or Alien, and try and see like what other messages or ideas are being communicated here beyond
1: just what we see on the surface do you find that fantastic film offers a particularly unique opportunity to provide metaphor and allegory and yeah uh, yeah Yeah, i think
0: it can It's, it's the perfect vehicle for that because uh it sort of disarms the conscious mind you know you think you're just getting a story about, um, you know, a, a, you're just getting a space opera about a bunch of misfits going off and fighting the Galactic Empire. Okay, fine. Sure. Peel back some layers there, and you see a very potent uh, metaphor for the Vietnam War. You know, and Lucas has admitted that that, right. that, that Star Wars was always political.
1: Oh, it's hard not to be. If there is a social strife particularly going on at mm-hmm. any one time in our society. Horror films are the first to reflect it. Exactly. Sense. You know, Toby Hooper didn't intend Texas Chainsaw necessarily as a, a, an allegory about Vietnam, but it's there. Oh yeah, it's 100%. dripping from that film, and and the racism that's confronted mm-hmm. in, in uh, Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. You know, George Romero always said that uh, his lead actor was uh, Dwayne Jones was chosen because he was the best actor available, and there's never a single moment of of uh, Reflecting that this is an African American character. Right. Nobody mentions it. Yeah. But this is 1968 and a lot was going on.
0: Yeah. Ripley and Alien. Same yeah. thing. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I,
1: it's a femi- one of the most feminist of, of movies.
0: Exactly. And I, it just, it, it really taught me. God, again, going back to Godzilla, that was the first film that taught me that you could have these layers and you should. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's fine and dandy if you want to make a horror film just for the fun of it. Sure. Know, just for the learning experience, you know, just for the visceral thrills of it. But if you can have something to say, science fiction and horror are the perfect vehicles for that. And I
1: encourage people to, to do that. Is that what draws you to the genre? And are is this a particular interest of yours or that's where you've end up, ended up for now? Horror? Yeah.
0: Oh, I mean I love it. I live it. Yeah. I mean <laughs> it's just I mean know. I know the feeling. But, yeah, I yeah, know I know you do. It's just um I mean well to me it's it, there there are very blurry lines between uh science fiction, fantasy and horror, you know, and sort mm-hmm. of genre has just become the label for all of it, superheroes right. included and you know, but then when you get into those genres, there are the subgenres. There's mm. horror comedy. You know, ghost super- stories, exactly. Zombies. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, I every- just, I just love it all. I just truly love it all. I think they are our modern myths, um, and that they do reflect the very strange times that we live in. And that's probably why we're in such a golden age right now. Mm. You know, whether it be science fiction, fantasy, or horror, we can't get enough of it. I think because consciously and subconsciously, we're processing a lot
1: right now. Well, I want to move into your comic book work as well and the, the comic book movies, the superhero movies, but uh, continuing with the Godzilla thing, which I want to mm-hmm. stick with for a while, how did that come about? There have been so many tries to reboot it, some more successful than others. Was this something that you championed from the beginning or you found that it was being developed at a studio and said, I've got to do that, there's no more appropriate filmmaker for this
0: movie <laughs> than me? Um It's funny. I mean, I my first attempt at making a movie was a Godzilla movie. Really? Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that my family had an old camcorder, and so my v- the very first thing I did when I grabbed it was uh, I set it up on the ground and then took my Star Wars play sets uh, and figures and Hot Wheel cars, and then I just let my pet turtle stampede through <laughs> this thing, playing music off to the side. You know, like that. the first instinct was like, how do I make a Godzilla movie or some kid version of a Godzilla movie? Starring um,
1: your little turtle Yeah, as exactly. Godzilla.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and and it just kind of grew from there. And I even remember, I went to NYU and I remember walking around New York City thinking, for the very first time, having left Ohio and just being amongst all these skyscrapers and thinking, how cool would it be to make a modern day Godzilla film with all the visual effects that Jurassic Park had because Jurassic Park, I was, I think I was a freshman just as Jurassic Park had come out. Yeah, it's
1: 93.
0: Yeah. And then I thought, well, gosh, it would be so neat to make that. And so I feel like the wish was asked for a long time ago. Right. And it's just been a steady progression since then. Um, but the more recent developments where I had just finished doing Krampus for Legendary. And uh, I was taking you know, just a little bit of a break trying to figure out what's next. And I, uh, I had dinner with Alex Garcia, one of the execs at the studio, and he very quietly said that Gareth Edwards wasn't going to be coming back, and he wanted to know if I had any interest in taking the helm, and I think I said yes before he could finish answering the question. <laughs> um, and so that was about two years ago, and so it's been a, you know, the process of putting together the story. We did a writer's room. Uh, took about a year to work on the script wow. while also doing visual development at the same time. Um and I just finished shooting it a week ago. Wow, you must be tired. I'm very tired.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and now, did you, as an artist and as an illustrator, did you do illustrations and storyboards for yourself, or or designs for uh, the Godzilla creature and all?
0: Doodles. I mean, I I surrounded myself with such an amazing roster of creature designers and storyboard artists, uh, and a very talented production designer named Scott Chambliss that. Every time I felt like I had to bust out my sketch pad, I, it turns out there was someone much better. <laughs> you know, like I, I can draw, but there are people who are much better than I than I am. Uh, and so I find that I, I I tend to only bother if I feel like I have to. Um, although I do need to design some new monsters uh, for this one beyond our initial four.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, so chances are I'll be much more hands
1: on. Uh, with the designs of those creatures. And people should know about the website that shows a lot of your paintings and drawings and the like, which is, it's michaeldoherty.com. That's yeah, just Doherty.
0: I, I haven't updated it in yeah. years, so God knows what's there. Well, but. there's a, a lot of really, really
1: good stuff up <laughs> there. And, and you're obviously a talented guy in many areas. But this is our Halloween show. Mm-hmm. And you've made an iconic Halloween movie that ironically, never really got much of a theatrical release. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it was released to Blu-ray and physical media, I mean, it became kind of a sensation. So tell me a little bit about your history with Halloween and how that led to Trick or
0: Treat. Uh, Similar to my love for Godzilla, it all started in childhood. Um, My birthday is just a few days before the holiday. Uh So the birthday celebration and the Halloween celebrations all started to sort of blend in with each other. To the point where I was having, just going ahead and celebrating it on Halloween. And then, go, you know, the, the birthday party involved trick or treating. So the whole month of October became a very special time of year, especially because the local TV stations started showing horror movies. Right. You know, every, every local station seemed like it had Shocktober or something like that. Um, so the whole month just became this time it still is i'm so happy it's october right now um, where <laughs> the whole world seems to finally regain its sanity and, and embrace horror and monsters and aliens and everything else um, and my love for the holiday started to push me into learning about the history of the holiday um, that seemed to be something i did a lot was that there was something i loved whether it be godzilla uh, Halloween, UFOs, whatever, it always involved a trip to the library to sort of discover the untold truth of whatever that subject matter was. And so with Halloween, uh, I very quickly learned about how it's a very real, magical holiday. Mm-hmm. You know, that it has very strange, mysterious, dark uh, roots. You know, it's not just this night of the year where you go get some... Cheap plastic costumes from Rite Aid, right? And go, out,
1: yeah. <laughs> and go out and
0: get a sugar high, much like you know a lot of our favorite genre stuff. It, it there's a deep, multi-layered history to it, and so that only made it more intriguing to find out that it really was this pagan uh, high holiday that yeah. we've sort of adopted and transformed into a very kid-friendly commercial venture. Um, Again, it was, it, was, it was sort of like discovering the truth about Godzilla. It was like, whoa, there's something subversive here. Mm-hmm. There's something genuinely mysterious and supernatural happening here. Um, so that just made me love it even more. Great. Um, and that's only grown over the years.
1: Well, I know that when uh, I was researching for Hocus Pocus, mm-hmm. I went back to Salem yeah. and discovered that there were, uh, you know, 10 to 11 day celebration there in this town that has more Witches per capita than any other in right. the world, supposedly. Uh, a lot of them are new agey kind of crystal witches. Yeah. Well, um, they're,
0: they're real witches. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: But going there and realizing here's this 10, 11 day celebration that climaxes on Halloween night with a candlelight vigil to Gallows Hill where the witches mm-hmm. were not hung, but were pressed to death in those days. So learning all of this. And then I went back like every year for six years just because i loved it
0: right and it, it just makes it, everything cooler yeah.
1: it, it is and yeah so now you're start you're getting an, a corner on the holiday horror market <laughs> you know you, next up i mean trick or treat well first let's talk about the anthology yeah quality of that because the anthology movie has always been around to lesser and greater extent to have success yeah and uh, this one Tell me how you came up with the format and decided to do it in that way.
0: Well, uh, I cheated. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It it was funny because uh, the character of Sam, which is the sort of uh, demonic trick-or-treater that wanders around between the different stories, he started off as an animated character that I did uh, for a short film at NYU. Uh So he was essentially my senior thesis film. Ah. Uh, And like I mentioned before... I didn't have access to a lot of great live action film equipment, so I went with animation just knowing that, well, I know I can make, I can do a lot of drawings one by one. I can make a film frame by frame. And so Sam became the first, my first, uh, hand drawn, full color, animated. Were these cell animations? Or cell you anima- actually
1: drew it on paper? Well, first you draw it on paper.
0: And then you then go. Then you transfer the- it to cells. Right. So it's a very tedious process. It took nine months to do a three-minute
1: animated oh, okay. film. And this is all before computers. But well, you're talking 24 frames a second, so it's yeah. 24 drawings. Well, you could second. do. You get away with 12 drawings.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. You get a 12... 1290... Or if
1: you're Hanna-Barbera, you get three. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. um, but, yeah, keep in mind, this is all before uh computer animation. So this right. is all old-school Disney hand-drawn animation. Uh And so... I did a short called Season's Greetings and that's where Sam was introduced. And then that kind of became my calling card for a while. And uh one of the first people I ever sent the film to was Stan Winston. Ah. because I was just a massive fan of his. Sure. Uh who who wasn't. And uh surprisingly he wrote back or he reached out and said saw the short, loved it. If you're ever in LA, let me know. Wow. And I'd love to sit down and, and hear about what you want to do. And so I booked a flight to Los Angeles. There you go. Right I took away. him up <laughs> on the invitation. Wasn't going to let him squeeze out of this. Uh, <laughs> and, and sat down and he said, listen, you need to be making movies. Because I was, I was an animator at Nickelodeon at the time.
1: Oh, okay. and Which
0: was a great job for learning and income, but I was animating on Blue's Clues, which is for someone of my taste, a bit mind-numbing.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) And your age. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: so, um, and Stan was the one who really nudged me and said, no, you need to get out here. And he's like, you know, have you written a spec script yet? And I said, no, I haven't done that. And he goes, well, you should do that. And so what I did was I said, well, I love anthology horror movies. Uh, And this was late 90s. This is like 99. So the anthology was dead at that point. Right. I mean, you could not pitch... An anthology, as a movie or as a TV show, without being laughed out of the room.
1: We experienced that with Masters of Horror. Exactly.
0: Yeah. It's just nobody. It was. It was. It was taboo. No one wanted to hear it. It was the A word. Right. And so I cheated. I took uh, four short stories. Well, I have sorry, two short stories uh, that I had written again in college as writing assignments, mm-hmm. and they just happened to be set on Halloween night. And so I figured, well, if I have two, I can always write two additional ones Right. and just set them on Halloween. And so I just took these four short stories, set them on Halloween nights, smashed them together, and said, here's my spec script. And Stan was the first one to read that and say, there's really something here I'd love to produce this.
1: That's great.
0: Uh, but the way he wanted to do it was traditional anthology, where you go out and get a director for each segment. each one, yeah. And so he assembled, at the time, uh, George Romero himself uh john carpenter uh and who was our fourth toby toby Hmm. it was toby yeah and um, boy what a lineup what a lineup right (laughs) yeah took it out nobody wanted to touch it oh my god i mean i remember the notes we got back from some of the studios uh and one of the ones that stuck out with me was, this movie has vampires and werewolves, which are too old-fashioned. Nobody wants to see vampires or werewolves. Oh, obviously. You know? Uh And so I just, I was, I was mildly offended by that. (laughs) You know? Because I was like, well, I want to see vampires and werewolves. Because this was, this was when they were doing scream knockoffs. Right. And that was all, the only kind of horror was being made was. Jokey, tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, young, with 20-somethings playing teenagers. Self referential. Right. Being stalked by someone in a mask. You know, no supernatural horror was being made, right. for sure. Um, but that setback allowed me the time to really continue working on the script. And then I also went and uh, wrote a couple of Brian Singer's movies, and that helped me learn about production because I had to be on set for those. Ah. And so by the time, because of that delay, I got more experience, enough experience that. Legendary Warner Brothers said, "Hey, well, well, do you want to direct it? We, we still think that there's something to this script. That maybe this is, this is meant for you to direct. So, you nice. know, a, a, yeah, perceived setback became a really positive thing for me. A great step for your
1: yeah. career. You know, yeah, and, and a greenlit movie.
0: Yes. So it was a long road to get it made. It was a long road." to then get it distributed. Right, was well. the
1: plan to put it out theatrically when oh, it yeah. was in production? Yeah. And, and what happened? What? How did that turn into what became a, a, a video classic? Uh, gosh,
0: I mean... Were there yeah, test screenings? Or There's always test yeah. screenings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, was, it, it, it didn't have the best time in post-production. Really well. I mean, it's 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 such a weird movie because mm-hmm. it's again, it's the anthology film which nobody wanted to make. Right. It's a horror comedy again, which mm-hmm. no one wanted to make. At all these strikes going up against it, and it's so
1: schizophrenic in a good way.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the studio just didn't know what to do with it. The studio being Warner Brothers, the right. distribution studio. Uh, Legendary still supported it, you mm-hmm. know because. They still believed in it, saw the potential for it. It just had a bit of an uphill battle because I think it was so quirky.
1: And I think Warner Brothers, of all the big studios, maybe cares the least or knows the least or has the least interest in horror despite it. But that was through New Line. Right. Even in my dealings with them, having written a couple of horror movies for them that never got made, um, they seem to be among the most conservative when it comes to the genre.
0: Well, they they also have mostly moved into, you know, as a lot of studios have into the tentpole world,
1: right? The franchise,
0: right? So, and and the studio has changed a lot in the ten years. This is, gosh, it's ten years ago. Wow. we were going through this. Just gotten a couple more gray hairs um,
1: <laughs> and goosebumps. Yes,
0: yes. Um, and and so they were mostly focused on Harry Potter, and right. those kinds of films at the time. So, see, sometimes you have to remember that, you know, that studio. Might not want to distribute it because that takes valuable time and resources and manpower away from other films. Sure. Which might be more of a sure bet, you know, or, or more likely to have an effect on their bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. And
1: if it's not like a previous success, they're not quite sure how to yeah. do something with it.
0: But the thing is, I have no regrets. I hold, I, I hold no grudges about it because I do feel like the path that it took this sort of meandering path mm-hmm. uh, where it became a film which really did, grew its audience via word of mouth. I feel like that was the best path for it.
1: Well, isn't that the best way for any movie anyway? Is through word of mouth. If your audience embraces it, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad
0: you said that because there is something to know. There's something to knowing that people who come up and say that they've seen it and they love it, that it's that they're being honest and sincere. Because it's not that you can buy your success right um, but there are plenty of films which come out horror or otherwise, which have huge opening weekends you know or make a bunch of money at the box office, but then once they end up on home video they're sort of never heard from again yeah you know yeah. that there's that there's no shelf life right to them it started on the shelf it started on the shelf <laughs> so. and it, and it's, it's managed to become this perennial. Um, And I do wonder, had it gone theatrical, and let's say it did come out in 2,000 theaters or whatever, and maybe it ended up not doing that well that year, yeah. and then ended up not having this home video afterlife. You know, it's it, the reality that we entered is the one that I'm actually more comfortable... I would not go back and change a thing. I would not go back and ask for um, a theatrical release, because I, I have enjoyed watching it find its legs on home video
1: and become this cult title and we genre guys are used to being the underdog right yeah you know and it's kind of something that bonds us i mean it's when we have these masters of horror dinners everybody's supportive of each other and it's like you've got a movie coming out this weekend that's great i can't wait there's none of that you know schadenfreude that happens throughout hollywood there really is a great support system and and we are the gutter snipes
0: you know (laughs) (laughs) well i think i think i think you have a good point the other thing that I think we're aware of is that it's a long road, and that just because a film isn't successful initially doesn't mean that it's not going to find its audience over time. A lot of my favorite films were commercial disappointments when they first came out, but then decades later, they've become these classics, one of which we're getting a sequel to this weekend, Blade Runner.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, but, How many
0: years did that take? Like That was considered... A, a commercial disappointment. Yeah. I remember at the time, even though I was just a kid, people said, "Oh, it's so boring." Um, yeah, the
1: reviews were pretty
0: mixed. Yeah, yeah, same thing with the thing.
1: Yeah, you know, and I, I did publicity on the thing and the making of the thing, and you uh, know better than anybody of that. Well, you know, I, I did the same for ET mm-hmm. at the at the same time, the same year, the same studio, and ET was what that was what the world wanted at that time, and the thing, you know, I I, I literally remember. Telling John Carpenter when it came out and it did not do well at all, mm-hmm. saying, I'll bet you 10, 20 years from now, people are going to be talking about this movie as yep. a classic. Yep. Because it was groundbreaking, which is a great thing to become a classic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really is something that sticks in, in your heart after seeing something. Literally.
0: Like yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a perfect example of, um, of that sort of long shelf life. And that's really sort of guided me in my career is I don't care about awards at all. Oh, in this like genre you'd better not. Well, yeah, <laughs> like negative interest in awards.
1: Yeah,
0: And, you know, I, I respect the box office and I understand that it's very important to our industry, obviously. Oh, and validation of any kind sure, is, is fine. But what really matters to me and how i try to choose my projects is whether or not this is a film that people will want to watch 10 years from now 20 years from now because that that sort of long-term shelf life is so much more appealing to me than immediate short-term success
1: well let's talk about that do you actually when you're making a film are you thinking of it having that shelf life because movies and television and media in general are so much of the moment and an expression of the society at that time.
0: I I try. I think there are... I don't have any sort of hard set rules, but I do try to make it as timeless as possible. So, I try to avoid dialogue or situations um, that will seem dated. Right in a month and a once year. you've got
1: an iphone x in there you're you're pegging yourself
0: well by the way so it's like the way that i i portrayed i try to portray technology in in the films i do is very minimal mm-hmm. you know we're very sort of general and vague it's like hairstyles or catchphrases you know there are certain certain things which can lock your film into a time period and And then it'll seem dated. Technology being a huge one. The hard part of technology is that we have to use it. We have to embrace it. But
1: it's a story point.
0: It changes so fast. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, nothing more illustrative of that than the 80s being represented by shoulder pads and big hair. Right. You know?
0: Yeah. There's certain things you'll never be able to avoid. Um, But even with uh, Godzilla, for example, I encouraged my costume designer, my production designer, um, even the hair and makeup people. I said, sort of look at. Look at everything, say, from the mid-50s up till now, and what are sort of the common design elements, whether it be the outfits or the hairstyles or whatever, that are truly timeless.
1: Right. Simple.
0: And yeah. simple and mm-hmm. classic, and will probably still be simple and classic and timeless 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became a fun exercise for everybody involved to try and find, whether it be props, furniture, or furniture, clothes, what have you, that... Um, that sort of had this timeless appeal
1: well while we're on the subject of holiday horror Mm -hmm. you moved on to krampus now this (laughs) is based on an actual european legend that Mm -hmm. the u.s audience is not very familiar with tell me how you first became familiar with krampus christmas (laughs) horror uh
0: well i think like a lot of horror fans november 1st is a very dark day you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> yes. everything that. It's over! But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, I hit a wall. And you know, as much as I try to avoid it, it's just, it's a sad day. The, you know, the pumpkins are rotting out on the front porch. <laughs> and I, I, you know, it's funny because I killed some time, uh, in some stores before coming over here and they already had the Christmas crap up. <sighs> you know, and the Halloween stuff was already on sale in the corner. Oh. And ouch. it just didn't feel right. Uh, it always felt like Christmas was, Constantly stepping on Halloween's turf.
1: Ah, okay.
0: And, um, and personally, as a kid, I was always a little bit, I think, like a lot of kids, a little bit terrified of Santa Claus. Mm. Because even the Santa Claus myth, forget Krampus, the Santa Claus myth by itself is terrifying. Mm. You know, the idea that you're constantly being watched and surveilled by this <laughs> fat, man in the, in the Arctic and his elves who, and they're going to judge whether or not you deserve getting toys or not. I mean, that's <laughs> dark. And the idea that we use that to manipulate our children is dark.
1: <laughs> and did you ever, were you ever placed as a child on a Santa's lap yes. in the shopping center? And
0: I have photos of myself as a kid screaming my head off, <laughs> you know, it's just this weird thing that our culture has embraced, really our culture has manufactured and then embraced because the Santa Claus that we know and love is really Coca-Cola, a Coca-Cola that, yeah. product. Um, and so it's just, it just, again, much like Halloween or Godzilla, something about Christmas didn't sit right with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also went to a Catholic school, so I learned all about sort of the religious elements of the holiday. So back to the library I went, and then lo and behold, it turns out Christmas is a pagan holiday. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, everything goes back to the pagans and the witches, because those are, those are the guys who knew how to do it right, you know? <laughs> and, and it was the winter solstice, and the Christmas holiday that everyone rallies around uh, in our modern society is something we created to sort of counteract and warp that holiday mm-hmm. and turned it into a christian holiday um but the original christmas as it were the winter solstice celebration was just as dark and weird and mysterious as halloween mm-hmm. you know that it had its own cast of witches and ghosts and Samine. yeah and forest spirits mm-hmm. and um they it was it it kind of was a borderline scary holiday because it was meant to be a celebration to sort of counteract the cold, dark winter. Right. And so uh, we looked into sort of the ancient uh, Christmas myths and stories. They all sort of led to Krampus. Mm-hmm. And there are even some theories that Santa Claus was purposely created to counteract the figure of Krampus. Tell us what
1: Krampus represents. Uh, I mean, to me personally, or what the mythology... Well, both the mythology and what you were presenting in this.
0: I mean, to me, it's a a character that, you know, again, working on multiple levels, like for kids is meant to encourage kids to behave (laughs) and (laughs) not be such little shit throughout the year, (laughs) you know, because it's like, if you misbehave, you talk back to your parents, here's this ancient monster that will emerge from his lair and come grab you and and haul you away to hell I mean <laughs> so it, be good John. right yeah exactly <laughs> you know so it's 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 these scare tactics um but I think if you really look at the mythological significance of the character of what it really means it's you know using the the holidays sort of as a reflecting period mm-hmm. you know it's like using the quiet and the stillness of winter to sort of you know, reevaluate your life, your situation, the people around you, um, and be grateful for what you do have, knowing that death is right around the corner. It could potentially take anyone at any point in time. Um, so, I mean, those are my favorite sort of mythological archetypes are the ones who, on the, on the service level, are just something fun and weird, whether it be Krampus, Godzilla, or, or Samhain from Halloween. Right. but. Underneath all that is a whole smorgasbord of, of weird psychological
1: turmoil and significance. And so what was your approach when you decided, was was this something you pitched to do a Krampus movie or a studio was going to make a Krampus movie? Tell me its evolution, how it came to be. Uh,
0: I got together with uh, a couple writer friends of mine, uh, Todd Casey and Zach Shields, and uh and it was—he was circulating, you know—he was kind of floating around as zeitgeist quite a bit, making appearances on Family Guy. Mm. Uh I think The Daily Show had a segment on him. It just felt like every time Christmas rolled around, there were more and more articles or news stories about who is Krampus. And so it sensed like, okay, here's an archetype which is clawing his way into our reality, much like one of the old gods uh, and who wanted to be embraced. And so I said, you know, someone's going to make a movie about this character, so it should be us. And, uh, it just kind of grew from there. Um, the idea of making it sort of a classic, um, what, what felt like could be a classic Christmas movie that then gets invaded by a horror movie. Mm -hmm. That was always the agenda. You know, that if you just watch the first 20 minutes thinking that it's a straight Christmas movie and no one told you otherwise, you would be completely on board. And then all of a sudden something happens where – And there's a monster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the kid doesn't – Christmas with a monster. Well, the kid doesn't mail his letter to Santa, which is, mm-hmm. you know, he tears it up and throws it out the window so someone else gets summoned. Um so we wanted to make something subversive and fun something really the goal was to make a Christmas movie. Right. Uh that was had horror elements in it. Which
1: it, is automatically subversive. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So You had written big movies that had gotten huge theatrical release and the like, but this was your second movie, and it Mm -hmm. was your first one to get a theatrical. Mm -hmm. And it was very well received critically. So what was the feeling? You know, this was a big change. Yeah, you'd gone through as the writer, but this was your own movie from conception through execution.
0: It felt great. It felt great. I mean, because, you know, for what you just said, is that it wasn't a script that a studio was developing and then brought us on board. This is something that was hatched in my living room, mm. essentially, and doodled on cocktail napkins at you know Hollywood bars while trying to crack <laughs> the story. I, would, I was we would sit there and, and kick ideas around. I'd be sitting there sketching the creature um, on an on a napkin or on a set of index cards or something like that. It was a homegrown um, passion project, uh, and. So, so to have it take a similar path as Trick or Treat, but to finally cross that finish line yeah.
1: really felt like a win. So how long was it from conception to release? Uh, two years. And what was the first audience screening that you sat through? Tell me what your experience was. It was the
0: one that you were at. At uh, the silent movie theater, ah, uh, on right. uh, in on the is it La Brea or Fairfax? I've been away for it's so on long Fairfax. on Fairfax. Yeah. Yes, I've been away for so long. I and it was, it was packed. Stuff, it was packed, and the response was fantastic. And that was the first time I had gotten to show the finished film. Like, I didn't realize to that. an audience, wow. and it was probably the best screening we had. Like I didn't. A lot of times I like go to go to the theaters after release and watch it with an audience or feel the reaction, but I I knew that. It, the reaction was never going to be better than the one that we got at the silent movie theater. Yeah.
1: Well, that was an amazing night. It was. And fun. I was really glad to have been there. It was Black Friday. That's right. <laughs> it was Black Friday. We screened on Black Friday. Awesome. Yeah. Appropriate. Completely. So let's talk a little about the world of comic books. Um, as someone who paints, draws, um, did you want to do comic books uh, when you were uh, in your formative years? No no i I
0: knew I was not going to be drawing comic books. I loved comic books I still do but um. For whatever reason, I knew it was just meant to be there as a muse, and not so much as a career choice. I think because I actually don't enjoy drawing sequential art. Ah, so it's just a piece. Yeah, which sounds weird being an animator. Yeah, but yeah. an animator is an <laughs> animator is different because you actually see the drawings come to life because mm. you you know you flip the pages like a flip book and you can see your character dance and move across the page. Um, but like for instance, I don't enjoy storyboarding in the same way that I don't enjoy doing comic book art, but I love doing animation.
1: Interesting. Yeah. When when I was a kid, well, my father had trained at art school, but Mm -hmm. never was able to make a living doing that. And the first thing I did was draw, and what I wanted to do was make animated cartoons. That was the thing that really got me excited until I started to write, Ah. and writing had me give up drawing completely uh, at a very early age. Mm. And, you know, the direction I ended up going was similar to the direction you went. But the world of comic books, I loved comics when I was a kid. Um But the superhero stuff was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And uh so that was something that I was fascinated by in comics, but not so much in movies. Mm. So... Tell me how you got involved. You did. You wrote two X Men movies and Superman Returns. They were all Brian Singer movies. Mm-hmm. So how did how did that start for you?
0: Uh, it goes back to Trick or Treat again, uh, because that was my spec script. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first landed in L A, the, the the calling card was Seasons Greetings, the animated short, and then the companion piece to that became the Trick or Treat spec script. You know, at, at NYU, you were always taught, okay, if you're going to go out to LA, just be armed with a spec script and a short film or something, just to show that you have the capability of of creating something, you know, from beginning, middle, to end on your own, right. you know, from your own passions. Uh, and so I made sure that I had that. And so, um, I and this was just after X One, X Men One to come out, which I didn't have anything to do with. Right. But uh Brian had read trick or Treat just as a spec just as sort of uh, to give advice on the script, mm-hmm. and then uh, and Brian's
1: also a big horror fan, yeah, he hasn't made he, that many horror. Movies.
0: no he loves horror and science fiction and you know all of the genre. Um, I keep encouraging him he needs to do a horror film, mm-hmm. something like Rosemary's Baby oh know? that would be great, yeah um. And uh, he liked it enough that when he needed uh, a new writer on X2, he suggested that um, myself and my writing partner, Dan Harris, come on board to do the rewrites, because they had a couple drafts done by the prior writers, but they were departing the project, and they still needed more work done. And Dan and I had started working together. Uh, we Our first writing job was Urban Legends 3. Oh, wow. Yeah. Another yeah. franchise. I know, right? It was the first... <laughs> Again, I was an animator at the time, Mm -hmm. and here comes Phoenix Pictures saying, hey, we read your trick-or-treat spec script. We don't want to make it, but would you like a job writing the direct-to-video sequel, Turban Legends? And so, again, I was an animator. I was like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Are you kidding? Yeah. And um, Dan and I went and pitched on that project and got the job. It became our first writing job, pretty much paid at scale. Right But it was fun, which is fine. It yeah. was fun because what we what we pitched was like, well let's take let's move away from the serial killer urban legends and into the supernatural mm. realm um and so Brian knew that we were you know now professional employed writers, and so he said, "Hey, can you read the x two script, give us some notes, and I want to see if I can bring you on to do some quick rewrites and what initially started as quick rewrites turned into, okay, we're flying you to Vancouver to be on set." Every day during pre production, all the way through post, call to rap. And you know how rare that is for a writer to be on the set. I didn't know at the time. Ah. I was really naive at the time. Uh, and I assumed that all movies had their writers on set. <laughs> <laughs> Only to get back and to, you know, finally go to my first WGA meeting and where I explained that I'd just gotten back from set. And they're like, What do you mean? We're what? Right. That's the writer's guild of America, for yeah. those who don't know. Uh and so uh, it was the best boot camp in the world was to be on the set of an X-Men movie surrounded by this amazing cast. And at the time, it was sort of like, um, Karate Kid where I didn't understand, like, why do I have to be there at call? <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I'm not a morning person. That's but a I'm very good threat. question, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but the way that Brian liked to work is he wants to block the scene and rehearse it with the actors. And if something doesn't sound right, He wants it rewritten. And so it was like being a fireman who was there to put out a script fire every day. And there were a lot, you know, where, and you learned that just because you write it on the page doesn't mean it's going to work when the actors actually start saying it. And um, learned a lot, uh, you know, uh, absorbed a lot through osmosis of how a set works. Right. Uh, And then that just kind of grew from there.
1: Well, it led to another X-Men movie, and it led to Superman Returns. But tell me about your experience with these giant franchises for major studios, Uh and uh, the writer is often the most expendable person on the list. Mm-hmm. And what was the process like? I mean, were you deluged with notes and different approaches and things the studio wanted to re-guide? And how did that work for you?
0: Well, we, we formed a little think tank uh between Brian, myself, Dan, uh, we kind of create this insulated hub where you know we would get notes from the studio or whoever and sort of talk amongst ourselves about, okay, well, how do we incorporate this note? Is this note actually improving things or not? Um, but we remained open because there was something he taught us is that a good idea can come from anyone at any point in time. And it's, I know it's popular to bitch and moan about studio notes, but they can be very helpful. And oftentimes it's, it's not about the note, it's about how you address the note.
1: And they can see it from the outside looking in. It's always a fresh pair of
0: eyes, yep. you know? And um, and so we were bombarded a lot, but we we had a really good method and system of of working together to figure out, okay, what's the best solution whenever a problem
1: arose. And so now back to Godzilla, you, you wrote, co-wrote and directed Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And so you're the guy in charge. Yeah. And so in the creative process there being more in control, I mean, this had to be a very different experience than Krampus because of the scope and size of this.
0: Yeah, it was different. Creature. Yeah. It's funny. It's, 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 it's different, but it's also strangely the same mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, uh, because much like Krampus, it was an ensemble cast, uh, the, the pressures, which you're very familiar with of, of time schedule resources, it's the same, just amplified. Mm. Um, the schedule was twice as long, so that was different. But again, I think I, had I not gone through the X-Men and Superman machines, I wouldn't have been as prepared as I was. Um, because those shoots were over a hundred days each Godzilla. Wow. We had 70 days. That's pretty big. Yeah. So, you know, my first two movies, I was used to these 102, 110 day schedules. Where you're shooting five pages a day.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And here Um, you're shooting a page and a half to two pages
0: a day. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was, I wasn't completely unprepared. Uh, There was, there's always adjustments to be made. Uh, And yes, Krampus was, and Trick or Treat were much smaller films, but in some ways it felt like a natural progression.
1: Well, we have a few questions from the uh, Twitter audience, and we'll get to that right after this. Podcast One has a brand new app for you to discover the show. Find out everything about your favorite Podcast One shows, including Postmortem with Mick Garris, through the all-new Podcast One app available now in the App Store or on Google Play. Find links to articles, social media, make playlists with your favorite episodes, and connect with other fans of the show. You can even create your own polls to debate your favorite horror films. We have our own little community on there. Check out exclusive content such as behind-the-scenes photos and so much more. And if you have 360 video or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality, there's over a thousand videos on the app right now. It's like you're in the studio. There is no other podcast app like this. Download the all-new Podcast One app in the App Store or on Google Play. So we do have fan questions, and just to let you know, you can reach us on Twitter at postmortemmg, one word, uh, on Instagram at postmortemgram. And you can see all of my uh, post-mortem TV shows, the old Z Channel shows, the making of free audiobooks and things at MickGarrisInterviews.com. So, Mike, Cody asks, how did it feel to have your movies become part of Universal's Halloween Horror Nights?
0: <laughs> oh, good question. Uh, I almost forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it feels amazing. Uh, last year they had Kramp- uh, Krampus House at Universal Hollywood. And uh, that was surreal because they are so detail-oriented that they even had the smell of gingerbread wow. in the air when you walk through. Oh, that's cool. Um, and it was just neat because it was Krampus, and then right next to it was Nightmare on Elm Street and The Exorcist and Halloween. And it's 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 like winning an award. <laughs> um, and then this year, Universal Orlando has Trick or Treat as sort of like an outdoor scare zone. Like oh, cool! But same thing. where it's just, there's, you know, there's actors dressed up as your characters wandering around in costume. It's it's like this dark, twisted version of
1: Disneyland in my head. Well, speaking of trick or treat, a lot of people asked, "What is the status of trick or treat too?" Oh, god. Uh, <laughs> Sorry.
0: No, 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 no. When thirty-seven I, I, people asked, I was, a question. I was wondering if it was going to come up. Yeah. Um, yeah. My hope is that uh, once Godzilla has been put to rest uh, that I can dive back into it. I mean, I'm hoping it's currently the first week of October. So obviously my mind is drifting back to it. Um, But I would love to finish writing it in post-production and then I'd love to make it my next project, but
1: we'll see. One last question. Sammy asks, I've heard there is a secret connection between Sam from Trick or Treat and Krampus, Is this true?
0: The films have certain common elements, uh, which I don't know if anyone has found them all. (laughs) The Doherty universe? Well, (laughs) in my mind, two ancient deities who protect uh, these quasi-mystical holidays would probably exist in the same universe and maybe get a drink uh-huh. And swap stories between holidays. Um, and in the film, there are certain threads that connect them if you
1: pay attention. Now, more postmortem with Mick Garris. I want to thank Mike Doherty once again for being a part of our special Halloween podcast on postmortem. You know, a few nights ago, I had the pleasure of uh, having a conversation at Beyond Fest at the American Cinematheque in Hollywood with the great Italian master of horror, Dario Argento. We intended that to be an entire episode of Postmortem, but there were technical difficulties that made that impossible. The recording quality was not good. We had a lot of uh, severe distortion and the like, but we have salvaged a few minutes because we didn't want to pass up this historic opportunity to share some of that conversation. So here are a few highlights from that night. I had the pleasure of working with you twice on Masters of Horror. And that was such a wonderful experience and watching you work and the detail with which you work and working with the actors and you rewrote the script yourself and tightened it up. And it was fascinating to watch how economically you work. You know what you're doing when you come in and you're ready to go and you want everybody to move at your speed. Tell me how, how you put that together. The script was written by the actor Stephen Weber, who played the lead. You cut a lot of the jokes out.
2: No, I changed uh, something uh, because it was written for by another. I'm not used to working the screenplay written by some other people. Usually uh, I write uh, the film for myself. Uh, and then uh, I, I rewrote this, this... This, But it was not bad. But... Uh, <laughs> light. No, <that's> bad. <laughs> <laughs> but light.
1: Now, one of the things that's interesting, this was based on a creepy comic book The that was drawn... Yes, yeah, the, yes. Recording, yes recording. The camera,
2: yeah. Yeah. It was good. The, the comic was getting good. Uh, Inspired me a lot for, for shooting a film.
1: In, in fact, you used some of the panels as storyboards yes. on the set. Yes, yeah.
2: yes, yes.
1: Your father was a film producer and your mother was a photographer, so you were born into the arts. Yes. So did you feel that filmmaking was what you wanted to do from a very early age? It wasn't painting or photography? No, no,
2: I, my, my purpose was not to, to be a film director. To be a writer, maybe, and then a critic, film critic. It was uh, the trump, and and uh, I started to write uh, films, for, for other people, like uh, the Once Upon a Time in the West, for with Sergio Leone. Uh. Mm. Which
1: also one of your co writers was Bernardo Bertolini.
2: With Bernardo, yes. A
1: couple of names you might have heard.
2: Yes. <laughs> and uh, then after, after the, 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 the film was, is a coincidence, maybe, but after the film with Sergio Leone, we start to do film uh, success. Me and Bernardo, we are big friends. It uh, shows uh, we are very young uh, we choose uh, this semi debutant uh, people uh, it's uh, was was uh, co- co- brave very
1: brave it is. well you made the transition pretty quickly in nineteen sixty nine to directing and writing the bird with the crystal plumage yes, so could you describe to us what giallo means
2: <laughs> this is <laughs> Sometimes people to do this this question. (laughs) Every time I'm very embarrassed. Jello, is something uh, like a little bit missing, but uh, with the important the psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is important to to uh, go inside the psychology of the character and. uh, also the women are important. Women, female, young, old, uh, every kind of woman. Uh, also, uh, uh, I work with uh, Jennifer Connelly, she was 13. Uh, some the phenomena. The phenomena, right? phenomena. yes. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the, genre. the genre is The uh, job is with female and uh, important character missed a little bit, and uh, um, something uh, reflect uh, the, your personal. Uh, and put this uh, like a uh, throw out uh, on, on, the, on the screen. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, I throw out all my bad things uh, in my, my stomach. <laughs> 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 To the screen, walks. <laughs> then, then so you vomited your. D- people, watch, people watch this moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you made three movies that are considered Jalo, which I guess would be a combination of yes. crime and psychology and eroticism.
2: But you, with. Erotic, A er, erotic, bit erotic and uh, female important character. Very stylish. Yes.
1: Mario, tell me about your casting process. I've sat in on some of the casting sessions for Jennifer at Propelts. And tell me how you like to work with actors,
2: how you discover that it's somebody you want to work with. Something is a, like an like uh, instinct. I follow my instinct. I, follow. I don't want to do the test, speak about. Uh, no, I, I have a conversation I have I follow my instinct, uh, it's, I like this person, it's okay for my film, it's simple. Well, what were the films and the filmmakers that really inspired you and made you want to make movies? This is a long story because I, I was the, the critic. Before I was a critic, I, I studied in France for one, one year. I discovered in France the, the, the American, the American. France Cinematheque. We have, uh, at the time, it was very important. Uh, we have the, every projection, every day, many kind of films, you know, of silent, uh, old, uh, new. It uh, was from, uh, discovered like, like, a, like a, a joke for children. mothers, to stay and, uh, on, the, on the seat and the watch a film different. And discovered the expressionism. I discovered many, many things. The, the first film of uh, and Bergman, the first film of the uh, also uh, influenced a lot. The film of the American uh, 40, 50, you know, uh, Sex Victims, Seventh seven Victim, and. Uh, uh, a Yes, uh, uh, Jack Turner also disappeared. Nobody will speak about him. Jacques Turner was... was Cat People and Seven Victims? Yes, people and uh, other films. He was a great person. He also did a lot of film noir. Were you also inspired by film noir of that era? Yes, yes. And they say uh, Jack Turner was, was one of these, maybe the most important. And somebody in the audience want to ask something. Yeah? Hi, I want
0: to know, what, uh, at what point in the creation process music plays
1: a part? The question is, uh, what the importance of music playing a part in Dario's film? I start to think of music
2: during, a, during a writing. On the scene I write, I, I discover some music uh, in my mind. This this I have a one lesson from Ennio who Was my first musician for the great. Ennio like, uh, was uh, he lives close to me, and uh, I I shoot where the not too much, uh, and I I have a meeting with him uh, it was motion and. Then I, I chose my, from my disc, you know, some with music or well, I think in my mind that was good for for, for for the film. The disc, I go to him with my disc and he um, was in a big, a big uh, studio and close uh, to piano and he watched which we watched me read, which is uh, audio 8, with we with 8, like a uh, animal. Why? Uh, right. Because he saw the, my disc. <laughs> it is, whichever it is. He said, disc, maybe you have some inspiration. <laughs> I'm inspired for myself, he says. <laughs> but it's not for the others. No, no, good, ah, no, no, I don't want to see you. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, maestro, sorry. Uh, okay, okay, uh, okay, uh, okay, uh, okay, you speak about, this is the uh, first encounter with the with the music. And then uh, I I was with uh, many people, Bill uh, Weimann from Rolling uh, Keith Emerson, Keith Emerson uh, and, uh, the and the Goblin. My <laughs> big <laughs> uh, friend, and also, this music was for me the best of all Goblin. <laughs> Is
1: there something that you haven't done yet that you really want to? Something in the world of film that you, a genre you have not done yet.
2: Okay. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Here is somebody want to ask? Question yes, Mario yes. had worked with George Romero over the course of the years,
1: and what were his thoughts uh, about working with George?
2: Yes, was was first of all was my best friend, <laughs> the best things are uh, my best friend and and my brother brother in films. We do the, some complicated relation at the beginning because when we met, he had the idea to do a, a film, Gone with the Dead. is the sequel of the Night of the Living Dead. He came in Rome, he write, he write the, the film in Rome, close to my house. I helped for a moment, some moment to to write this the film, uh, and then he started to shooting. And I was it was to him for some some week. This is, was. And then we have uh, two versions of the film. At the beginning, uh, George don't like the version I do there. But after we, uh, he was it he was uh, he's agree. He says, it's, it's, it's a little bit different, but good too. OK, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because we have the music and so and, um, and then we do another films together with the evil We do the, that film uh, together in Pittsburgh. It was great. To, to do a film with uh, George. Then we, we're still a big friend. And, uh, this year we have uh, the departure of people, I uh, believe, Toby Hooper, uh, Wes Kramer, uh, <laughs> lots of people, mothers, mothers, director uh,
1: disappeared. Uh, okay, it's, uh, this is the life. A couple more <laughs> questions from the audience. film style references between your films and Brian De Palma's films? Is that something he invented? Or, <laughs> or that is an actual thing? The camera operator on Phantom
2: of Paradise also shot off So I'm the
1: same camera operator on Phantom of Did you have a creative relationship with De Palma?
2: I don't know De Palma. <laughs> Met him. I never met him. <laughs> yes, uh, sometimes I see some or some scene of mine in these films. It's okay. It's <laughs> <I say>, okay. <laughs> it's good because also I stole some scene from from the expression, in, from Fritz Lang from from the. This, this is a, our world of movies. Uh, but I saw some scene uh, of mine in uh, these films. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good. If you like? Uh, okay. I am happy.
1: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris.
0: Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.